Wild family. We are back with a pretty rough tale this week of a family annihilator. This is going to be a two-parter, so put on your seatbelts and buckle in. This week we have a special guest. She is not new to the pod. She's done this before. Gicky! Hello! Woo. And you might hear my dogs. <laughs> They're special. Uh, this week we're going to talk about the human pile of garbage, John List. I read a book this week about it called Death Sentence, and it's by Joe Sharkey. I also want to give a shout out to Kevin Piz on guessing who the killer was in the Facebook group. So hello, Kevin and the whole Piz family. So let's get into it. John List is an American murderer who in one full day took the lives of his wife and three children as well as his own mother. Besides me telling you about it, did you... Have you heard about it? Never heard of it in my life. Um, so the question a lot of people may ask is, John List a spree killer or a serial killer? And the actual truth is, it he is neither. Do you know the differences between all those? Um, I guess it would be a spree killer is someone who just, like, with no time in between, kills different people. And a serial killer... Would be just someone who kills multiple people, but with different amount of time in between, maybe? Yeah, like a cooling off period. Yeah. So, by definition... Well, yeah, he is neither, sorry. (laughs) He's actually a mass murderer. Um, A mass murderer commits multiple murders, typically simultaneously over a relatively short period of time in close geographic proximity, so... You remember when somebody went into the movie theater and killed all those people? In Colorado? Yeah. Yeah. That would be mass murderer. Because he killed, and they were all in, like, the same area. So, since we are here at at the Macabre Family Podcast, our true crime, I figured I'd let everybody know. What's going on? Good to know. The FBI defines mass murder as murdering four more people during an event with no cooling off period between the murder. Killers kill multiple people with a cooling off period in between the murders. They can go days, weeks, or even years in some cases between murders like BTK or Dennis Raider, Raider who would wait years between the murders. It does make it harder for authorities to pick up on the trails of people who basically disappear between the killings. Now a spree killer is a lot like a mass murderer. There isn't a cooling off period. It all happens pretty quickly all at the same time but in different locations where a mass murderer does it all in one place. The DC sniper is considered a spree killer, whereas the Columbine shooting is considered a mass murderer. So now we get to John List, who, like I said earlier, one day murdered everyone in his family except his stepdaughter, who at the time was married and out of the house, which initially saved her life. John Emil List was born in Bay City, Michigan on September 17, 1925, to John Frederick List and Alma Marie List. His father, at the time of his birth, was 64 years old. Right? Actually, his son was a couple years younger than his wife, Alma. Wait, so his father's son is a couple years younger than his his biological mother? Yes. Because this is like... So, I'll get into how they met. Um... They had just gotten married a year before John was born after John Frederick's first wife died of cancer. Alma was hired by the family to take care of her while she was in hospice, and that's how they met. So she was the nurse to his dying wife. Well, that's good. 
Yeah. <sighs> um, not only is that how they met, but they were also cousins. Ew. Are you they're, kidding? Ew, no. Like, we're like second cousins or something? Their grandfathers were brothers. So I guess. That's disgusting. Right? I wonder why this guy had some sort of issue where you're going to kill someone. Yeah. <laughs> Let that sink in. <laughs> That's so gross. As a child, and while he lived with his parents, John did not have a formal bedroom. He actually slept on the couch in the parlor with no actual door. When he would get up in the morning, he would have to clean all his stuff up so it would look like nobody, no child lived there. Why? His, his dad was an old man and didn't care for him very much. Oh. He attended Lutheran Elementary School... And he basically was always told you to be not be seen or heard. So you know, usually like children are you see and you hear them. Yeah, he was told like shut up, be quiet. Uh, a tenant of his parents would later say he was the neatest boy they had ever met. You wouldn't even know he was there. So his parents had this big house and they rented rooms. So this kid couldn't have a bedroom, but they rented rooms. So for other people. <laughs> um, his dad was completely hands-off when it came to raising him. And I, like, he didn't take care of him at all, basically. And he didn't even call him by his name. He called him the boy. That's me. And that's all he would call him. You know, he did the deed. He laid the bed. Exactly. Like, why wouldn't you... Obviously, a kid came out of it. Why wouldn't you take care of it? You're a part of that. Yeah, no always the boy. The only time that people remember John Frederick and John together were at church services, which were always held in German. So <laughs> now <laughs> that makes sense, right? Strict German guy. Yeah. So not many people even recall much about John Frederick, except for the Halloween story. So John Frederick was not really a man just to hand out anything to anyone without them earning it. And Halloween was literally no exception. He hated Halloween. So wait, this is his dad? Yes. John Frederick. So I'll, I'll call him John Frederick. And I'll call John, the other guy John the boy. Okay. We're talking about his life while his dad's alive. Okay. So John's dad, John Frederick, considered Halloween a satanic ritual. And was not going to hand out candy to freeloaders. So the List House did not hand out candy whatsoever for any Halloween. So, this happened before John the boy was in high school. Kids, sick of the tired of not being able to get candy, would go ding-dong ditch. <laughs> ring the doorbell, run away. Ring the doorbell, run away. It happened a bunch of times, and finally... <laughs> it's funny. John Frederick got annoyed, ran out the door chasing after the kids. One of the kids, scared, ran away, fell into a gully and sprained their ankle. They screamed and cried in pain until all the neighbors came out to see what the problem was. To avoid getting in trouble, the kids told their parents that John Frederick chased them down for no reason. Oh my god. <laughs> so due to the fact that John Frederick was already considered a cranky old man in town, it wasn't surprising that the parents believed the kids over the guy and they were going to try to press charges against John Frederick for assault. Oh my gosh. So the, his minister was able to step in and convince the parents not to do that. But the repercussions after the Halloween incident were all focused on John, the little boy. Oh. 
he was picked on, and for years the neighborhood kids would call call him Trick or Treat Johnny. <laughs> he hated it so much. But I honestly it's not even that bad. It feels like a porn name though, <laughs> like right? a porn star name. Trick or Treat Johnny. Oh my gosh. All of John, the boy's life, he was completely coddled by his mother. She didn't approve of many people, so John wasn't allowed to play outside with other kids. She was afraid of him getting sick, so she kept him inside with her most of the time. And then they would read the Bible together at night. So this is a little kid. Um, he did this all his life. And later, we'll hear about when him and his wife would get in fights. He would go up to his mother's room and they would read the Bible together. I never says anything about if there was anything going on, or if it was just like a needy little boy and his mummy. Oh, I mean, if she coddled so much, why would she allow him to not have a bedroom and like he was exactly that makes but no sense. I think she was more afraid of her husband and wanted the money to be able to, you know, yeah, have a house. In high school, John wasn't remembered by many. He didn't have any. Uh, he didn't have many friends. <laughs> All anyone would remember him for was how he dressed sharply, and that was about it. <laughs> that made me think of Mikhail, like in his suits. Oh my gosh! <laughs> dressed me right. Um, in the yearbook where everyone put the class prophecies, John just said he would end up in the army supply corps. You know, like the little things like. Oh, Tina is going to be a model or go to Hollywood. Yeah. Army Supply Corps. I guess somebody else wrote it for him. Oh. Which was actually closer than they thought that would be. John graduated from high school in 1943. And like many of his classmates, he wanted to get out of school and join the Army to help during World War II. But like a lot of his classmates... Who would leave school early, like graduate early to enlist in the army? His mummy wouldn't let him. Oh. <laughs> Would you say he graduated in what year? 43. Oh. So I think, what, two years? Two so, years, yeah, because yeah, yeah. it ended at, in 1945, I'm pretty sure. So after he graduated, he'd finally join up and he would spend his time in Louisiana for the first year of the army. He would write letters home and tell his mother how much he loved it. So I think he loved it because in the army, rules are really rigid. There's You wake up at a certain time, you do this, and that's exactly how he liked it. Right. Well, in the army, in 1944, his dad passed away. John got leave, went home to Bay City for the funeral. Although he was there for his mother, people that were at the funeral said it didn't even seem like... He cared? Yeah, at all. Um, he basically acted like nothing happened. He was finally shipped overseas for the final days of the war on April 11th, 1945. So this is funny. He, him and his patrol got captured by German soldiers, but the German soldiers realized like the end of the war was coming. Right. They were losing. So they switched. They, so the German soldiers captured the Americans. Yeah. And then they realized, okay, well, the war is ending. The best thing for us to do is to have them capture us. So they switched <gasps> roles. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So the German soldiers became the POWs. So because of this, that he was a POW for an afternoon, he got a bronze star. Oh. But 
John didn't realize that in 1944, the government was using the Bronze Stars like a morale booster mm-hmm. for people. And he would they would give them to whole units because they were like, here's a Bronze Star. You're doing good. You know, kind of like a... Participation award? Basically. So, after the war, John came home with a few medals and a new love for weapons and war games. He was obsessed with, like, strategic war games. He bought a Austrian Steyr in 1944, and he would not use that gun in for 27 years. So, after the war, John decided he was going to head to college. On his mother's urging, he went to college for accounting. So, his mom wanted him to be an accountant, so that's what he did. Alma decided on the college as well, so he went to the University of Michigan, which was right near their house. I would not be able to sit there and have my mom tell you what to do. Right. So, on top of that, Alma would go on the weekends to visit him at college. That is so wide. Like every weekend? No, once a month. Oh. They would spend the whole weekend together reading and discussing the Bible. He wrote letters home to his mother pretending to be a lot more social and have more friends than that was the truth. Bob Clark, a classmate of John's and a frequent fixture in his letters, never even remembered meeting him. Although John remembered him and would later on in this story use the name Bob Clark as his alias. Because, spoiler alert, he kills his whole family and gets away with it for 18 years. That's crazy. How can you kill your own family? In 1950, he graduated with a B average with a bachelor's degree in business administration. Um, after graduating, his Army Reserve unit was called to get up for service during the Korean War. He never saw battle and spent most of the time in Virginia going to Civil War museums and battlefields. Because, like I said, he is obsessed with the war. Like, war games, all that fun stuff. Yeah. Uh, on one rare occasion, John went bowling with a friend, Ted, in Newport News. While there, Ted and John were bowling near two pretty women. Ted struck up a conversation with 26-year-old Helen Taylor. While Ted was talking to Helen, John struck up a conversation with the other one bowling, Jean Seaford. Helen and Jean were sisters. Jean actually forced Helen out because Helen had been sad. Her husband had died six months prior in the war, and she had finally been able to bury him, like, the day or two before. So Helen was a widow with a nine-year-old little girl named Brenda. Ted and Helen did go out on a couple of dates until Ted revealed he was married. Oh. So Helen ended things with Ted, but not long after she did that, she recalled, received a call from John that would inevitably change her life. Born on January 1st, 1925, Helen was the third in five children. She grew up in Greensboro, North Carolina. Go ahead. What? Greensboro, North Carolina. No. What? Oh, Alabama. Greenbow, Alabama. When I was you, typing you know what this, I say. I'm I like, think Nikki's gonna. You need to go back home to Greenbow, Alabama. Sorry, everyone, <laughs> if they are listening to this in headphones. <laughs> I literally thought of you. I'm like, oh, she's gonna get a kick out of that. Um, it has been said that Helen was an abused as a child. Helen left school at 16 to marry her first husband, Marvin Taylor, in 1941. Uh, it was a happy marriage by all accounts. Helen, though, seemed to be unlucky. During the birth of Brenda, her um, first first child, the doctor accidentally splashed ether into Helen's right eye. 
<laughs> yeah. Don't know. Don't know how you accidentally. Why would they have ether? The 40s. What do you do with ether? Is that like mm-hmm. alcohol type deal? Oh, I don't know, but it caused her to have like a wall-eyed look. Like her eye, like is looking at you, but she not. So she couldn't from her right eye. She couldn't like if you were coming up behind her. Yeah. She couldn't see you on the right side. Her peripheral vision was bad. So after that, she became pregnant again and gave birth to son Kenneth. Six months later, Kenneth died due to complications with a blood disorder that was on Helen's side. Through the following year, she would have multiple uh, miscarriage. Shop it all off, though. She went to Korea to be with her husband. And 18 months later, she was re- got really sick. Many tests in an emergency trip to America found out that she had syphilis. Due to, due, <laughs> due to her husband's nights out in Korea. Oh, gross. After Helen and Brenda came back to the States, Marvin would die during battle, exposing himself to enemy fire to save his platoon. He died a hero, and that's something Helen would hold on to all her life. After a little the, uh, little more than two months of dating, Helen announced to John that she was pregnant. John, thinking the proper thing to do was to marry her. Um, what? On December 1st, 1951, they were married in the Lutheran Church in Baltimore. Helen's sister, Jean, and her husband, Jean, were witnesses. Yes, they're both named Jean. What? <laughs> that's very confusing. After the wedding, that's when Helen told John that she wasn't actually pregnant and that she was mistaken. I personally believe that she knew she wasn't pregnant. It was trying to trap somebody. Maybe. I mean, this is the 40s. Security. Or 51. And back then, it's like if you weren't married, you were a spinster. What's a spinster? Like an old lady that... Like I was before I met Nathan. <laughs> Come and hang out with your kids so I have something to do. <laughs> um, in January 1952, not long after their wedding, John got orders to an accounting regiment in California outside of San Francisco. They knew it wasn't going to be a long stay, so they left Brenda with Helen's mom for the time. Instead of taking his new stepdaughter having this as alone time with his new wife, John decided to invite his mom along. For the trip. What the heck? <laughs> we see throughout the whole story that John has an unusually close relationship with his mother. It is a creepy. He has to ask her opinion on everything, and her opinion is always what he goes with. Like, he has no thoughts of his own. This is why no one remembers him, I think, because he literally has no personality whatsoever. It's all somebody else's personality. That's so weird. In January 8th, 1955... The first daughter of Helen and John List was born, Patricia. Patricia, oh, Patricia or Patty seemed to bring the whole family together. In 1956, John and his family moved to Kalamazoo, Michigan, so John could work at the Sutherland Paper Company, which was a throwaway paper company, like they boxes, paper plates, stuff like that. Do you know what I mean? Like you, they make paper products that you just throw away. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, everyone seemed to adjust to life well in Kalamazoo. October 21st, 1956, John Frederick was born. The second child in quick succession for John and Helen. After the baby was born, all Helen wanted to do was be left alone. Not only by her new family, but by John's mother, Alma, who would make trips down right after the baby was born and spend a lot of time there. 
While they were in Kalamazoo, John became the treasurer of the Lutheran Church there. Over time, Helen got sick of getting all dressed up to be the trophy family at the church, sitting next to John in the pew. She wanted to be able to have Sundays off for herself. So while John took all the kids to church with him, uh, she would stay home. This became a big fight between them. Even though John never really said anything about it, he was snippy, you know, and had mm-hmm. an attitude every Sunday. And he also made it to point to let Helen know everyone noticed she wasn't there. I forget what it's called, but like somebody's upset, but they use like they're like, oh, so and you know, yeah, like, I'm mad at you, but I'm gonna go being passive. There you go, passive aggressive. Um, by December 1957, Helen once again. Um, became pregnant and was bedridden by a doctor's orders as she was with John Frederick. Brenda was once again, as she was before, saddled with all the responsibilities of taking care of her mother as well as the children. Now 16, all Brenda wanted to do was be out of the house. She was sick of ter- taking care of everything around the house and figured if she was doing it, they might as well get her own place. August 26, 1958, their last child, Frederick Michael, was born. After Frederick was born, Helen was over it all. She had four kids in the house and wanted to escape. So she began drinking heavily, and on top of that, she became addicted to the housewife's helper, Doridan. Or Doridan. What the heck is that? A tranquilizer. What? <laughs> yep, it was a tranquilizer that was supposed to help you sleep well and wake refreshed for the day. So in the oh. 50s, they would give these to all the housewives. Although, mixed with drinking at night, it made Helen basically useless. She wouldn't change the baby's diapers, not cook dinner, not clean. As a stay-at-home mom, she probably should have been fired. <laughs> yeah, probably. She would leave the lights on the house, leave the lights on the house at all hours of the night. When she would actually do the house cleaning, it would be at 3 o'clock in the morning. Neighbors recall seeing her out vacuuming the living room at 3 a.m. with all lights in the house like a blaze. Their electric bill is probably crazy. <laughs> no one in the neighborhood knew much of Helen, but they did know all the kids had the most expensive clothes. During the day, Helen would take the playpen outside in the driveway and leave Frederick out there until noon all alone. What? Not only would she do that, she would also call John's office, leave him messages, messages saying that your son messed his pants, and if you want him clean, you should come home and do it yourself. That's awful. This would happen on more than one occasion, and John would leave work to come home and take care of his young children. During this time in their life, it was clear that the marriage wasn't what it should be. Helen didn't think much of John, it seemed, and John could tell. Helen felt that John would never match up to her first husband and made sure to tell him that while she was drinking all the time. John realized that the only way to make Helen happy was to spend money on her, so he did, and he spent a lot. He was already getting in debt by doing this. He never let it on, though, that the money was dwindling. When Brenda turned 18, she left the house and married her boyfriend the same day they got the marriage license. She was happy to be out of the house and finally on her own. That same year, John got a promotion. Although, in 1959, his company, Sutherland, was merged into a new company when they were bought out. It turned into KP, KBP Sutherland Paper Company. Since John had no management skills, he was asked to leave the company. John's next job would take the family from Kalamazoo, Michigan to Rochester, New York. He started working for Xerox, a brand new company, in the early 1960. They moved. The move seemed to help the family. It seemed it brought them all closer together. 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 
Helen and John would even start going on dates on the weekends. Helen, Helen made it clear that she'd be happy in the marriage as long as John did what she wanted to sh and showered her with material things. As the years went by at Xerox, the higher-ups became less and less impressed with John's work. He was a fine worker, but he um, wasn't management. Like, he couldn't lead anybody. John started to see the downward fall. Instead of blaming himself for the issues, he started to assume it was all Helen's fault. During the time in the 1960s, it was customary to attend work parties for the company you work for, and you're supposed to bring your spouse. Helen hated going and being shown off, so in order to make things go smoother, she would drink before, drink a lot while she was there. She would flirt with men while she was at the party, and all John would do was sulk in the corner. That must have been embarrassing. Once she was thoroughly drunk, he would finally take her home. This bothered John, and like you said, he was completely embarrassed, right. although nobody else seemed to notice. A col colleague of John's would later say that it was the 60s, everybody got drunk at these parties, and no one noticed if someone was more drunk than the other. It was just what you did to network. Joe would later, after Helen's death, try to blame her for his shortcomings at all his jobs. The reality of it was that John just didn't have the skills to achieve what he wanted, and his way to blame was to blame everybody else. The highest John would ever get in Xerox was director of accounting service services. He would constantly try to advance his job title, but they didn't see him as vice president material, which is what he wanted. He didn't have the managing skills or the presence to, for that kind of position. And after a while of him being annoying, asking for, like, promotions, they'd let him go. Oh. By 1965, Helen's health started to go downhill. She was suffering from the early stages of cerebral atrophy. atrophy. What's that? It is a degenerative shrinkage of the brain tissues caused from the syphilis she contracted in Korea. It was made worse by the drinking and the tranquil tranquilizer she became addicted to. This disease could cause mental disorientation and paranoia. In the summer of 1965, Helen became bedridden with this. John and Patty did everything around the house. Neighbors would see the kids and notice that they were very protective of Helen and would do everything to, they could to keep the house clean and make sure she didn't need to worry about anything when she wasn't feeling well. After John was let go of Xerox, he once again put resumes out all over the place and finally got a bite on a job with a title he could be proud of. Vice President and Comptroller of First National Bank in Jersey City, New Jersey. After John got the job, he found the last house his family would ever live in. It was located in Westfield, New Jersey. John then found a house that would live up to his title and Helen's idea of what a house should be. A 19-room mansion, 10 fireplaces five bedrooms and five bathrooms. On top of those five bedrooms and bathrooms, there was servants' quarters with two bedrooms and two bathrooms in it. So she wasn't even going to have to clean her own house? No, she... they didn't have the servants. It's just it was a mansion built like way back in the day. Oh. But she could barely even keep their house clean. I know. She... It was a huge place, but it needed a lot of work as well. Alma gave Helen and John the down payment for the house on the condition she was able to live there with them. Alma Garner wish and moved into an apartment on the third floor for the last five years of her life. Alma would later confide in a friend with, in letters that she this was the worst time of her life. She hated it there. In her whole life, she had never been more than 10 miles from her birthplace. This new house seemed to once again bring new life to their marriage, though. They were both excited to start renovations in the new mansion. He would mow the lawn once a week, and this was something everyone in the neighborhood would notice. 
Not because he was doing it once a week, but because he was doing it in a full suit and tie. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I just like to look sharp snag or look sharp. There we go. If he was outside, no matter the time of day or the weather, doing yard work, it was in a suit or tie. Uh, neighbors would laugh and gossip all around town about it. Even people from streets over would come just to look. Oh, <laughs> poor guy. He could just like to be a sharp dresser. You feel bad for him now, but then... I kind of do. You, you forget that he's a murderer. Yeah. As the children got older, John got stricter. He was worried about the influences that were coming in contact with and tried to alter what they were doing. Everyone seemed to notice it, and John was getting the same reputation his father did, a cranky grouch who didn't like his kids doing anything. A story from one of the fellow parents at the Cub Scout troop Frederick and Joni were a part of said that during the Pinewood Derby one year, John talked to the kids, talked to those kids like the fun, this fun event was a lesson not meant to be fun. Like a lesson in etiquette, lesson in, you know. He even wore an adult version of his son's Cub Scout uniform. What? And he would march kids into meetings like they were in the Army Regiment. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. John's new job at the bank only lasted a little over one year. The title he got was only just that, a title. The job was a self-star position to get new clients into the door. Which is something John was not a self-starter. He needed rules in like a strict way of doing things. He was at that he was that way at work and at home, and he did not want to tell Helen he got fired from his job. So every morning he would leave the house like he was going to work and sit at the train station reading a book for six months. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's crazy. In order to make up for the money he lost, he would go once a week to the bank and take money out of his mother's account because he was the power of attorney. Yeah. At night, after dinner, he would go up to the apartment on the third floor, sit with his mother, and read the Bible. Near the end of 1967, he found another job at the American Photographic Company in New York City. Once again, he held the title of Vice President and Comptroller, although the job only lasted about a year. He found a new job shortly after he was fired as a mutual funds salesman. So, Patty, or Pat, as she was now asking to be called, was a 16-year-old headstrong free spirit. She was warm and kind. She was independent and would use her mouth to tell people exactly what she thought of them, a lot like her mom. Her sophomore year, very aware of the money troubles at home, she decided to get a job. That way she could help out at home and have some money for herself. She got an after-school job as a file clerk and soon got her younger brother, Freddie, a job there as well. Freddie would work 90 minutes in the afternoon doing janitorial work. Uh, Pat bought herself a guitar and would write her own songs. She began to notice that it seemed her father didn't like her all that much. At 16, she still needed permission to leave her street. All her friends remembered her as a good kid and never did anything wrong. In the last months, eight months of her life, she found the theater. She loved it. She found a family in that theater group, and this would give her very much joy in the last months of, of her life. She was excited about it and brought out happiness in her. Johnny was a 15-year-old budding athlete, although he had a quick temper, he could control it. He was a strong kid who played on his school's JV soccer team. I wrote time. <laughs> what? I wrote time, but it was team. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh -huh. 
Freddie was a 13-year-old baby-faced sweet boy who charmed everyone. He was on the school paper reporting on the school sports teams. Both the brothers were fans of the New York Mets. On October 13, 1971, John walked into the Westfield Police Department to get a gun permit. His fingerprints were taken, but he never came back to get the permit. Because what he does, I suppose he didn't really need the permit. I don't know why he got a gun permit, but he did. On the Saturday night before Halloween, John allowed Pat to have a Halloween party in the ballroom, which was surprising to everyone who knew John. John did cause a scene at the party. He confronted a young boy sitting on the stairs. He ran after the boy and chased the boy out of the house, trying to kick him as the boy was running away. What? What a mean person. Um... A strange thing people noticed was that all the furniture was missing from the first floor because John had sold it all, which is weird. So October 13th, 1971, this is the year they died in 71. Yeah. In October, he goes and gets a gun, but the family doesn't die till November 9th. He'd been planning it the whole time. Helen was slowly dying. Slipping in and out of lucidness, it was all Helen's fault, though, according to John. Pat was going down the same path, and John decided that he was going to make sure that wouldn't happen. He hit rock bottom. There wasn't any money. John decided the only way out was up, and he didn't want to take any extra weight with him. By weight, I mean his family. So the only way he saw out of the hole was to go at it by himself. Oh, Jesus. On November 5th at dinner, now listen to this, it is the most fucked up thing. And I said that quietly because there's two little girls there. <laughs> um, November 5th at dinner, he told his children straight up they would be dying soon. He told them what he was going to do and everything. Why would they say that? I don't know. Um, and he asked them, what would they like done after death, burial or cremation? All the children, shocked by what he said, were said that they wanted to be buried. After they told him that, he just got up and walked into his office. It is believed that Patty and John, Johnny, knew and believed what their dad said it was true. At Pat's theater group that night, everyone noticed how upset she was. On the way home, her teacher, Ed, and her friend gave her a ride. So he's an older man, and it is said that they might have had a relationship. But I think she did tell him she had a, like was in love with him and wanted to marry him. Oh, jeez. Um, he gave her a ride home, and she confided to him that her father was going to kill her. Ed did not believe her, though. She was insistent and told him multiple times that her father was going to kill her. She told Ed that if... Anybody told him that the family went on a trip, that it was a lie, and that they are dead. Two days later, Ed showed up at the house unannounced to bring back, quote-unquote, a book. Uh, He did that as an excuse to make sure, like, to see what was going on. Yeah. Because he was worried. Uh, When he got there, Helen was there, and Johnny let him in. He chatted for a few with them. And didn't see Pat, so he went to leave. On his way out, Johnny stopped him at the door. This is the son. Mm-hmm. Grabbed him by the arm and said, he told them that whenever he's in the neighborhood to please stop by, he is welcome at any time. And he, like, looked him directly in the eye, held him, like, firmly by the arm and was like, please 
Come by anytime yeah, you're like, around. I feel like if I was like the oldest, I would take the younger ones and just go. Yeah. That's scary. On November 9th, 1971, John put a dark line under the last line of his budget book. So he like took a marker and put a, a line under the, that day saying this was the last day. This would mark his final decision. This would say he gave up and it is time to do what he'd been thinking about since October. He had planned the death of his family to the letter. Days before November 9th, he had called to stop the newspaper delivery to make sure it wouldn't pile up after he left. He had already packed his bag make sure, and made sure it was light. He was bringing along his passport in order to fool authorities into thinking he might be going on a plane. He really wouldn't be, though. He wanted to try and stay ahead of the police. In his mind, he's ready for what today was going to do and ready to escape. He hadn't even started the murders yet, so he waited anxiously for his plan to set in motion. After the kids went to school, he went to gather his guns and ammo. He had a colt that was his father's and his prized gun we talked about earlier, the Steyr. They were already cleaned and loaded and ready to go. At 8.30, the milkman came to drop off the milk. John left a note saying that they would be stopping the service until further notice and that the family was going away. About ten minutes later, Helen came down to make herself some coffee. As Helen was sitting at the table drinking her coffee, John approached her from behind. He raised the gun. Helen, sensing that he was there, started to turn towards him. He shot her once, hitting her in the jaw. He was sure she was dead at that point, but still proceeded to shoot her a few more times. After he shot Helen, he raced up to the third floor to his mother's apartment. He barged in and found his mother in the kitchen making herself breakfast. He raised the gun and shot her in the cheek. It knocked her back, but he also shot two more times, which hit the wall. He meant to bring her downstairs, but since she was a bigger woman and he wasn't strong enough, he then dragged her into onto a plastic carpet runner, you know, one of those things that people put down so yeah it doesn't leave footprints yeah uh it dragged her from there to the narrow hallway off the kitchen and put her in a closet he cleaned up the best he could but he really wasn't that worried about cleaning up he went downstairs after he was leaving his mother to try and move helen from the kitchen he grabbed her by her feet and dragged her to the ballroom there was a 40 foot trail from the kitchen to the ballroom of blood Oh my god. After he left her there, he went and got four sleeping bags. He rolled Helen's body onto a sleeping bag face down. He then used a towel to cover her body and then a kitchen towel to cover her face. This is something you see a lot of killers who are familiar with the person that they killed do. You, I mean, you is it like remorse? Not remorse, but they don't want to see what they did. They don't want to look into the face of the person. Uh... He went about cleaning up where Helen was laying. He wiped his bloody hands on Helen's bed sheets for some reason. Like, he cleaned up and he had blood all over his hands. And he, like, wiped them down her bed. I, I don't know why. After he did that multiple times, he went to the bathroom and ended up getting sick, leaving another bloody handprint on the porcelain of the toilet. After that, he showered and got dressed again. He left his dirty clothes and shoes on the floor because... He just didn't care anymore, and this was not something he would have done. But he wasn't hiding anything, and he wouldn't have to be there to look at it for much longer. He wrote letters to the kids' schools to explain their absences, as they had to make an emergency 
trip to North Carolina to look after Helen's mother. While John waited for the kids to get home, he went out and raked the leaves outside one last time. Don't know why. Oh my gosh. After he got inside, Pat had called the house saying she wasn't feeling well and that she wanted to come home right after school instead of going to work. This is an event John didn't plan for. Pat was supposed to be working and wouldn't get in until 5, but now his plans have changed, which we'll hear throughout the whole killing that the plans keep changing and keep getting messed up. She asked her father to come and pick her up. He went to the school and picked Pat up. They rode in silence the whole way home. I don't understand how he could have went to the school, picked up his child, looked her in the face, and then rushed into the house before she could get out. As she was gathering things from the car, it took her a minute, and then she walked in after her dad. She walked through the kitchen door and didn't really have any time to see what was going on. Her father was hiding behind the door, and when she walked in, he shot her in the back of the head. She fell to the floor, and like her mother, John dragged his 16-year-old daughter to the ballroom, leaving a second trail of blood. Oh, that's so terrible. After he put her in the sleeping bag... Um, the mother was laying, was it perpendicular, and he put her vertical under her mom, so her head was like against her. Um, yeah, around one in the afternoon, well, sorry, he did that, went up and showered and changed once again. So around one in the afternoon, he went to back to the bank to cash a check for eighty-five, then went to the post office. He mailed an envelope with a to himself with a small key in it. He then filled out a form to stop the mail at the house for 30 days, and then he mailed ab- the absent letters to the school. He then went back to the bank, cashed another check for 200 So over the years, he actually embezzled $50,000 from his mom. He went to clear out the savings deposit box he had at the bank, and it was just saving bonds and jewelry, and then he cashed the saving bonds, what came to 2000 So in total, before he fled the state, he had... $2,300. I don't think he did what he did for more than money. He was embarrassed that he lost everything. And he, in order to fix it, he thought his problems were his family. Uh, he's. I just think he's a coward. He should have just killed himself. Yeah. He signed out of the savings vault at 157 and he headed, headed back home to finish his plan. Fred showed up at work at 3 p.m. as usual. He was really well liked at his job. But the employees noticed how upset he was that he found out Helen wasn't, not Helen, huh, his sister, Pat, wasn't there. And hearing that she wasn't there, he called immediately called home. And the secretary, who listened to the phone call, never forgot. She, he was very forceful and demanded to know what happened to Patty. And it was a tone that nobody at the, his work had ever heard before. After the phone call, Fred told his boss that he had to go home early. Once again, this threw a wrench in John's plan. He had to go and pick up Fred from his job. Again, John hustled in before Fred, Fred could. I remember, he's 13. Oh, my God. <sighs> um, he got the gun from where he left it behind the kitchen door. And just like his sister, Fred never saw it coming. He was killed with a gunshot to the head. John then dragged Fred to the ballroom, so the third blood trail, and put him on the sleeping bag right next to his sister. Another hitch in John's plan was that Johnny's soccer team couldn't practice today because it was too cold out, so Johnny was set to come home earlier than expected, something John didn't know until he saw Johnny walking up the driveway around 4. 
John had to scramble to get in position behind the door, something that Johnny caught on to. So instead of coming into his death unaware, he saw his father leveling the gun at him and he was able to dodge the first bullet. So instead of hitting him in the head, it caught him in the back. The second bullet got him in the back again and that didn't kill him. So John picked up both guns and shot him, like repeat, like trying to shoot oh him with guns in both hands. Something like you'd see in a bad action movie. Johnny tried to flee by crawling on his knees away from his father. He did everything he could to survive. As he was crawling his way away, his back to his father, his murderer then shot him in the back with a twenty-two until it ran out of bullets. Aww. He then dragged us into the ballroom. After he did this, he made sure to neaten up the sleeping bag so all the sides were even. And if you're standing looking at it, like I said, it looked like a cross. Yeah. The mom was here and the three kids were here. Oh. The monster then kneeled and prayed for the lives he just took in cold blood. I, he did, I don't think he even cared, to be honest. Oh. A little before five in the evening, the doorbell rang. Scared the hell out of John, as he looked around the curtain, he saw a mailman with a special letter, letter he addressed to himself. He let the mailman slip the note under the door and watched as he walked away. I assume John had to go change his pants because he probably shit himself. Probably. At 7 p.m., he made a call to his pastor. He told his pastor that his family is on their way to North Carolina and he would be joining them shortly. He told him he couldn't teach Sunday school for the next couple weeks. Then this psycho sat in the house with the five dead bodies and ate dinner. What? Yep. He ate dinner. Um, He then called Pat's drama club. So nobody would come looking for her, telling the secretary for the drama club that she was going to North Carolina with her family, and he didn't know when they would be back. Um, he wrote a letter to his business partner, saying he was going to be out of work. Um, what about that, like the drama teacher or whatever? Well, he didn't. He didn't. Yeah, he didn't get to talk to her. He just, him. He just talked to their secretary. After he ate dinner and cleaned up, he then wrote letters to Helen's mother and sister and then his own aunt apologizing for what he did. Yeah, he's like, oh, I'm sorry, it just had to be done. Um, He put the guns and ammo in the side drawer of his desk and put a note on the drawer saying it was there. He then put, he wrote a confession letter to his pastor and left it in an envelope with the letters for his, uh, Helen's family. And put that in another drawer saying that. Finally, he left an unsigned note on top of the desk. And it was addressed to the finder. The note were instructions on to the call of police and where the keys to the desk were. Because when he shut the stuff in the desk, they locked. Oh my gosh. Um, he then went to bed. He slept in the house. How could he even sleep? Like, and... So, obviously, he didn't feel guilty at all. When, um, in part two, because this is a two-parter, um, I'll read, he did an interview in the 90s, and he literally has no remorse. He, he says he's gonna see his family in heaven, and blah, blah, blah. No, he's not going to heaven. No. Uh, what bothers me a lot, too, is that he didn't apologize to his stepdaughter. He wrote letters to everybody else apologizing for what happened but never to her i just i mean the letters themselves are stupid 
ridiculous that he thinks he can apologize like that, but right. still. Ugh. He then put the heat down to 55. That way the pipes didn't burst and that decomp wouldn't happen that fast. He didn't want anybody coming and looking for any reason until he was far away. He also left all the lights on in the house except for the lights in the ballroom where the bodies were. He then placed all the newspaper and paper towels he used to try to clean up in shopping bags in the kitchen. He then put classical music on through the speakers throughout the house. He walked out the back door with a small suitcase and over $2,000 in his wallet. He got in his car and went to Kennedy Airport. He left his car in the long-term parking lot. And that is where we're going to leave you this week. Oh, my God. <laughs> we will terrible. pick up next week for the on the 18 years of John's life where he was a free man. The gruesome discovery of the family and the final capture and trial of John Emile Liss. I hope you all have a great weekend. Thank you so much, everyone, for the support. I love you all, my McCobb family, and we will see you next week. Okay.